Hello and welcome to Research Top Tips from Myelopathy Matters, supporting AOSpine Recode DCM. Advances in clinical practice require research and innovation, but what does it take to be successful? In this series, we hear from some of the world's leading surgeon scientists on how to overcome common challenges for research programs, such as acquiring funding or managing clinical practice alongside research. However, in this episode, we look at the importance of involving patients. We hear first from Dr. Mark Cotter, surgeon scientist at the University of Cambridge, on how working with patients has changed his research approach. And then from Toto Grundlund of the James Lind Alliance on their approach to bringing patients and professionals together. My name is Dr. Benjamin Davies, co-principal investigator of AO Spine Recode DCM, and my co-host today is Dr. Michelle Starkey, also from myelopathy.org. This is Research Top Tips from AO Spine and myelopathy.org. Mark, what has been your experience of engaging with people with myelopathy and also the general public in clinical research? It really has completely changed uh, my perspective and I've learned a huge amount. It started when I was a trainee surgeon uh, and um, was a senior trainee surgeon. Um, I was tasked to operate on an elderly lady with cervical myelopathy, and she was a very experienced nurse. So she eyed me up, um, completely understood the position that I, I was in, um, but somehow started to trust me and was happy with me doing the procedure. But somehow at the same time, she, she seemed to have entered into a pact with me that in return for me being able to operate on her, she would have access to information. And so right after the surgery, you know, she, um, she sat me down at various times uh, and we had very, very long conversations about her condition. And that didn't stop there. Uh, after she was discharged, she would write me letters ranging from five to ten pages with very specific questions surrounding her cervical myelopathy and also asking um, things like, you know, what should I do in order to address my neck pain? Is there anything that you can recommend to improve my hand function? How long do you expect me to suffer from bladder issues, etc.? And I was trying to answer those questions as conscientious as possible. So I always went back to, to the literature. And I must confess that there was very, very little scientific research on any of the questions that she asked. Uh, and over time, I realized that this is really a fundamental gap in, in our knowledge. And of course, as a researcher, I became more and more excited uh, about you know, trying to make a difference in, in this area. And really, uh, that also led us to start up an information webpage, uh, myelopathy.org, that uh, now obviously has turned uh, into a charity after we connected with uh, Ewan Sadler, who started a patient support group, etc. So 
all in all, you know, the interaction with the individuals that uh, suffer from cervic myelopathy have changed my entire approach, the way that communicates about cervic myelopathy, the, the research questions uh, that I ask, uh, all the way to my clinical practice. It really um, teaches you that your perspective might be quite different from the way that one experiences myelopathy if one has it. And once I think once you've crossed that road, once you understand that you're here to help and serve those individuals that suffer from the condition, you can't go back. You have to connect to them and you have to get input uh, into a direction for your research. So how has this experience of engaging with people with myelopathy shaped your the design of your research and the delivery of it? This experience... Whilst interacting with individuals that have myelopathy has really entirely changed my approach. And it's also the reason why we initiated Recode DCM, which really is a multinational, multi-stakeholder initiative trying to come to, to a consensus of what the research priorities are for, for research in cervical myelopathy, but also a consensus of, you know, what needs to be measured and essentially how clinical research needs to be conducted. So is there anything that you know now which you wish you had known at the start of your career? I'd like to know everything that I know now and restart my career, that's, but that's not possible. Um, so if we would have known what we know now, even before we reached the conclusion of Recode TCM, a few decades ago, I think our knowledge base and our repertoire and our way of being able to treat myelopathy would have completely changed. Hello, Toto. Nice to chat to you this morning. Tell us what the James Lind Alliance is, perhaps give us a little bit of insight into who James Lind was and what the role of the James Lind Alliance is. The James Lind Alliance is actually not an organisation. It's, it's, it's a non-profit making initiative. It was established in 2004 by Surian Chalmers, who incidentally is also co-founder of the Cochrane Collaboration, which a number of researchers will be aware of. The James Lind Alliance brings uh, together patients and carers and professionals together in in something that we call priority setting partnerships, which is what the Recode project was one of. So the basic aim is really that uh, we make sure that health research funders are actually aware of the issues, the unanswered questions that matter most to patients and to professionals who look after them. Ian Chalmers certainly had a reason for, for calling it uh, James Lind Alliance. James Lind was a Scottish naval surgeon in the 18th century, and uh, he realised that he was losing more of his sailors to scurvy than he was in battle. He decided to compare different treatments of scurvy by randomly allocating his sailors to the various kind of random remedies that were being applied at the time. And I assume they included things like the usual ale, uh, seawater, vinegar, but he also gave them the juice of oranges and lemons. 
he allocated two sailors to each treatment for a period of 14 days. And his study showed that oranges and lemons were absolutely unbelievable. They really helped his sailors much better than any of the other supposed treatments. Then that was an example of what, the first randomized clinical trial, I suppose? Indeed, indeed. That's the uh, the reason that Ian Chalmers called it James Lind Alliance, because one of the principles of the James Lind Alliance is that we are evidence-based. Not only do we uh, involve people with lived experience and professionals, but we make sure that the work that we do is evidence-based and contributes to the evidence base. So when was that sort of decision made that you know it was important to involve everyone? That was back in 2004 when uh, Surian Chalmers recognised that some of his patients were suffering with problems that he had not appreciated. When he asked patients with rheumatoid arthritis as to what was their biggest concern, which he assumed was pain, in fact, the patients responded that it was fatigue. And this was a light bulb moment for him in that, you know, he'd just been looking at the problem from a different angle to what the patient saw as the issue. And that's when it, he realized that it was much more important to involve people with lived experience in, in deciding the research agenda, not just the academics. That's fascinating, isn't it? And I think we've, we've obviously learned with that with the RECODE process, because it was those different perspectives that, that brought things to the forefront. I think a, a key example of that is that awareness priority, which you know, hadn't really been on the surgeon agenda or indeed the, the other healthcare professional agenda. It came through because the people living with the disease were campaigning for it in many ways. Absolutely. And, and I mean, it just shows that there can be such a big mismatch between actually what matters to people with lived experience and what actually gets researched. Yeah, I can imagine. I just wondered, you know, what, what is your experience of engaging with all of those different groups of people? Well, personally, I find it extremely rewarding. People really appreciate working together as equals and, and being heard and respected. And it's very humbling as well, because you realize that the expertise out there is just vast. And and it's interesting, you, you might have thought that, you know, these sorts of groups might be a little bit awkward, or people don't engage or participate. Um, but they do. People are just grateful for being asked from both sides, whether it's people with lived experience or the professionals, they, they actually seem to really appreciate being asked. It's just that people can be too frightened to kind of make that first step. Yeah, it's nice. And I remember Ben sort of telling me that um, when he came back from New York, one thing that was really nice, and he described it like a school disco, that on day one, you had sort of all the surgeons and healthcare professionals on one side of the room, and the people with lived experience on the other. And by the end, they'd all mixed. Can I just pick up a slightly different point from that as well, I guess, because I think it's, you know, when you've been part of the process, it's very easy to buy into it, really understand and recognise why different things come to the forefront. But if for someone who's not been involved in the process, you know, why should they trust that these James Lind Alliance PSPs really are getting the breadth of the problem and, and balancing those different perspectives to arrive at what, what really does matter? I think the results speak for themselves. You know, we've we've had uh, more than a hundred of these priority setting partnerships now, and and even more projects that kind of use the approach in to some extent or another. And these projects have actually attracted new research funding and changed the research agenda out there. So it it clearly does make a difference. And and what what is interesting is that. There's not really that many other competing approaches. There's a few other ways of doing consensus setting. However, this is certainly a very popular 
approach, not just in the UK, but uh, also internationally. And that's one of the really key things that you have to remember when you do these sorts of priority setting exercises, that it's no good just having your top 10 is something that the Recode DCM project's absolutely amazing at is is raising awareness with researchers, with funders, and and with the general community out there. I just echo that. I think that's something that we didn't sort of see at the beginning, but it's it's absolutely come through as the process has grown and grown. And I just wanted to pick up on a slightly different point because I think we do have to recognise how integral AO Spine has been in backing this project and, and the network and the investment that they bring to be able to put this all together. Because it was my experience at the very beginning that trying to approach organisations to fund these sorts of processes, which can be very expensive, is really tricky. And is that is that something that James and Alliance sees as, as having difficulty with? I mean, how do people get these sort of projects off the ground? There are various ways. And, and typically, as you say, it's either a research grant from one of the big research funders like the Wellcome Trust or the NIHR, National Institute for Health Research, or quite often it is a charity. So small and big charities try and raise the funds to do these sorts of projects. And very recently, we've actually got a project that's been largely crowdfunded. So there are interesting approaches, but it certainly makes a big difference, especially for something like Recode DCM, which is a big international project covering people from across the world to have proper funding and and a, a sort of a supportive organization behind it that helps enable things to happen. I don't know which one of you would prefer to answer this, um, but what's in it for them? You know, why would, you know, an organization like AO Spine or maybe some of even the smaller charities you mentioned, why would they be interested in getting involved? Good question. Good question. I mean, I think uh, I can answer a little bit first. I think on an overall level, you know, it really allows you to identify some critical questions, which you then, as a lead funder or investor in, in research, can really put your resources into and make sure that that research is delivering on. Because I think the the biggest pressure now on on, on a sort of policy level for research is that, that to demonstrate that that individual research is having an impact. And there's a lot of work around the idea that you know targeting the wrong questions means that that research won't have the right impact. And so researchers are obligated to make sure that they're investing in, in the right direction and, and serving the, the community that they, they mean to serve. And it's interesting when you often apply for grants now that they are, especially in the UK, asking whether these have featured in things like the a JLA top 10, for example. And if this hasn't, they're very critical about why, why you should be asking those questions. So it has that sort of policy high-level direction part, at least in part, but I think something for AO Spine here is that it also has this great opportunity to bring together a totally new perspective. I think you know, AO Spine is an organization of surgeons uh, and it's very much that is at the heart. But what they've been able to do here is tap into a totally different perspective. And, and I think, as Toto has mentioned, a real byproduct here is, is raising the profile of a condition which didn't really have a profile before. I would certainly echo what Ben has said and agree with that. One of the factors that maybe influences a research funder or a charitable organization like AO Spine or, or any of the smaller charities that we have in the UK is that currently the research agenda already has lots of influence from other sources, from the pharmaceuticals, medical tech industry. So there's plenty of that kind of influence around already. So it makes sense that, you know, with their charitable aims, which is about their client population, you know, the people who have that condition and the healthcare professionals who look after them. But if a charity has, the, you know, supporting those people, then it makes sense that they also support the engagement in, in research agenda. 
I think that's absolutely right. I think that's been put much more concisely and clearly than I said, but I think that's right. You know, at the end of the day, these organizations are wanting to serve the end user. Why not bring the end user into the whole research process? And if they start, if they're involved at the very beginning, then you know that the direction that research is going in is going to have and add value. And I guess that brings on to a different point, Toto, which I guess expands beyond the James Lind Alliance to a degree, because the JLA is very involved in, I guess, informing the direction or the or the research questions. But there is a role and potential role for the public and, and people living with disease throughout research. And is that something you've had experience of, of contributing to or helping to facilitate? Yeah, I've worked with other other groups in various settings. So in, in the healthcare setting, I've worked with multi-stakeholder groups of NHS staff, uh, including admin staff, you know, re- uh, receptionists and, and so on to develop core requirements for things like um, medical records and record keeping, information sharing, best practice, how to deal with information sharing in a research setting. I have worked with groups of people on determining core outcome sets, which are the comparators that allow studies in that particular condition to be compared across the board. So outcomes that should be measured in every single research study. These sorts of things are tremendous value to to creating a credible evidence base from research. Toto, what would be your advice to any professionals who might be thinking of working more closely with people, patients uh, and the general public? Well, really, just do it. It can feel daunting, maybe not knowing where to start. But I think it's really important to remember that patients are people too. They're people with lived experience and, and they've got a story to tell. They've got a good narrative and, and an important one. So, and there are a number of organizations that can help the James Lind Alliance. You can start small with a patient partners group or whatever, and think about what it is that you're trying to achieve. You know, what's the goal? Why, why, do, you, why do you think perhaps you should be working uh, more with patients and the general public? And that will help you lead on to the best way of doing it. And I guess, Michelle, that's possibly something where the Marlopi.org, the charity, can, can have a good role here, you know. There is an, an online community, a large community of people living with myelopathy, uh, obviously the disease that we're particularly focused on here, and a potential community that could be approached for, for these sorts of questions or projects. Yeah, absolutely. And they're really you know, key to, to what we're doing with the charity. We've always had that very close link with them uh, because of the way the charity was sort of set up with both you and Mark and, and your connection with Ewan, who's running the support group there. So they've always been sort of heavily involved you know, it is a, it's a growing community and I, I really invite people who are conducting myelopathy research to reach out and see if that community can, can help. They are you know, very engaged and I think keen to, to have a role um, where they can. Um, and I think that's something that really needs to be tapped into. It certainly totally changed my perspective on, on myelopathy and I'm sure it would do the same, same in other situations. One of the key points of James Lind Alliance that we always emphasise that we do it usually include family, carers, friends in that kind of spectrum of people with lived experience. The family, the friends, um, and and people who are also impacted by uh, you know the person with the condition, you know DCM uh, in this case, and uh, they're a really important community that really gets forgotten very often, but they can be very severely impacted. And, and because they are the supporters, um, we need to understand what their needs are too. And, and they are very often forgotten. 
if we look at a slightly different project that, that Recode's also been doing about the core outcome sets, um, and um, that process is ongoing, but it, it started by conducting interviews. And we did separately interview people living with myelopathy as opposed to being the sort of family and carers. And actually, they were, were, they were suggesting different outcomes. So the, the core outcome sets about understanding exactly what research studies should measure. And those different perspectives interviewed separately were actually sharing different aspects of the disease um, that they felt were troubling. It was interesting. I think, for example, the, one of the ones that cropped up in the, um, the relatives interview was, was nocturia, which is going to the toilet overnight. Um, that didn't come up in the um, people living with myelopathy's interview at the time. And I guess that's because, you know, their sleep's been disrupted because, you know, their partner is, is constantly going to the toilet, for example. So it's just interesting how that has a definite value and a definite dimension to this as a whole, a whole thing. And it's interesting because one of the things that um, the, the people with myelopathy actually mentioned is that both a social impact on their sort of carers and family, but also an economic impact. So we mustn't forget that those sorts of aspects are important too, because these people still have to continue living their lives 24 hours a day. And we certainly felt that uh, in, in both the New York meeting with DCM and in the core outcome set work, and those are all sorts of things that perhaps the average research doesn't really go to because it's a, uh, from a medical-based model. I just wanted to pick up a technical point, which may be something that people going down this process encounter, or certainly from the research side. And that is the idea of how this sort of um, engagement is conducted. Because I think, for example, I think the question really relates to, you know, whether or not this sort of process requires ethics, which often is a big, not necessarily a barrier, but a procedural step that a lot of this, um, a lot of research has to require. Is that something that James Lind Alliance needs? They think that's, that's required for these sorts of processes? In the UK, uh, the sort of work that uh, James Lind Alliance Priority Setting Partnerships do is considered to be consultation. So it's not research per se. However, we do make sure that when we involve patients or their carers and supporters, that we do it in an ethically sensitive way, applying the same sorts of principles that you would if it was a fully-fledged research study. And by that I mean is that at any stage of the process, we are very clear with them what the implications of being involved are and, uh, you know, that they can, you know, pull out or stop or whatever at any time. And also for some topics which can be quite sensitive, we try to make sure that there is support available to them. So if anything upsets them in the process or triggers an emotional reaction that we have provided some means for them to you know have a conversation or get help or so they know where to turn to so these are all things that you would do in any sort of research study anyway so we do apply the same principles I'm interested in that point actually because I, I was just thinking you know imagining being in this process and it could be quite triggering actually you're going back to a time when you know something devastating happened in your life and sort of having to pick that apart but I think on the flip side of that um, a number of the people that have been involved that we've spoken to since have mentioned how nice it was to be in a room with other people that like totally got where they were coming from. No you're absolutely right Michelle mostly it is a positive effect for people because you know, it's perhaps the first time they've ever really had an opportunity, like you said, to share their stories, to have somebody listen to it, and to feel like they're in a community with uh, people with sort of similar experiences or even different experiences, but which they can all respect. 
So we've been talking about the value that can be added by including people with lived experience in the process of priority setting. But I'm interested in hearing a little bit more about how they can get involved in the next step. So once those priorities have been set and they've been made into research questions, you know, how how does that go? That's um, uh, an important question, I think. And I think the answer is there is, in, I think, increasingly a, a role in almost every stage of, uh, of research conduct. Obviously, we've touched very much on the, the steering of the, of the question itself. But, you know, I think of the trials that, that we're running here from Cambridge, you know, we have um, representatives from some lived experience, if you like, on the various committees that are overseeing things. They've been integral in terms of designing the the information that we give to participants to make sure it's you know it's fully understandable. It covers all of the the content that's necessary, uh, and they're really keeping a very hands-on um, feel and management of, of of the trial itself and, and issues that crop up. And I know in one trial, for example, they are looking specifically uh, at um, potential barriers that we face to, to recruitment. So I think they've got opportunities and there's a role uh, researchers should recognise throughout that, that trial experience. But I think something I've learned from Recode is that, that probably there is also a fantastic opportunity to make use of that, that community and actually the dissemination of results themselves. So it's a really good point that, that you raised there. Just from the outset, uh, typically a James Lind Alliance um, uh, priority setting partnership uh, would typically publish their findings from from that process in in a peer reviewed journal um, just to ca- gain that academic credibility. But uh, what's what's really important is that they do always include the the members of the the partnership uh, who've been involved uh, in their author list, and it's not just a matter of kind of polite inclusion in the author list. Um, the people on that the steering group of that partnership have actually been involved in reviewing the the documentation and in in pulling everything together. People can can write stuff too, uh, but the next kind of stage beyond the sort of public is I think people have a huge role in, in helping to disseminate results of research and so on. I'm involved in reviewing quite a few research applications, um, in particularly in primary care. And there's such a big difference in the sort of quality of a research application where they've clearly involved patients and, and people with the condition in designing and developing that application and in their plans for then disseminating the results of that research um, through both the patient community, so not just through academic media or conferences, but also through the patient channels that people might actually read through blogs and Facebook groups and, and um, you know, charities like myelopathy.org. So they've got a big role. Otherwise, it's only the academics who are going to find out about this research. And to be honest, I, uh, I know Ben is quite an academic sort of clinician, but the sort of frontline primary care practitioners don't all have time to read peer-reviewed journals every day of the week. So they also benefit from some of this sort of other communications mechanisms that are around. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point. And that's actually something I took away from from James Milligan, who was a guest on one of the podcasts, really looking at how we can raise awareness. And he talked about the value of the information that a patient brings into his consultation room as, as a primary care clinician. You know, they come armed with some ingredients that help steers that consultation. And I think it, it made me realize that, yes, absolutely, trying to reach the general public, whilst it can seem such a vast number of people to try and get to, 
you know, there is value there and, and they can be reached very effectively, particularly if you're trying to get to the people who are interested in a condition, perhaps because of the certain symptoms they have. And I think that could be a really key part, Michelle, of actually how we, how we address that issue of awareness. One of the things I wanted to ask you about Toto as well was, do you have any perspectives for professionals who might be sceptical about the role of this integrative approach? It's a slightly loaded question for me because I think one of the things that has cropped up from, from my close work with, with people living with myelopathy is actually that one of the important recovery priorities that's been identified, in fact, the number one in our, in our large survey, is actually pain. And there is this longstanding legacy, I think, that, that pain isn't really a feature of myelopathy. But if you ask the people living with it, then it's very much at the forefront of their minds, certainly in the longer stages of the disease, you know, once they've been sort of living with it for a period of time. And trying to get that information across um, to the spinal community, I say is, it's been difficult. That's a very interesting comment that you make, Ben. Uh, I, I wasn't aware of that. And it just echoes back to why uh, Ian Chalmers started the JLA in the first place. What the clinicians thought the problem was was not the same as what the people with lived experience thought the problem was. Um, so I think you know that kind of answers that uh, in terms of their their skepticism. But it's very difficult if if clinicians won't listen to patients with lived uh, experience and, and listen to their narrative and their stories. Then how do we convince them? And and I would guess you need to think about well, what's their skepticism based on? You know, why have they come to this view? Where is their original view coming from? Is it medical education? Um, you know, what what are the sort of paradigms, models that they're operating under? Being open, open minded. Well, I think that is that's certainly a lesson for me. I mean, I take that survey as an example. I didn't anticipate that being the finding uh, that came out of that survey, but. You know, the more I've looked into it, I think it's a, it's a robust and generalizable finding. Ben, I was just going to ask, do you think it is something to do, you know, like Toto's sort of alluding to, with the medical profession and perhaps this barrier, this white coat between them and the patient? Because, you know, in all different areas of life now, whenever we do anything or buy anything, we're, we're expected to write a review on it or we're asked for our opinion. So it sort of comes within that realm, doesn't it? You know, there's the person that ex has experienced the condition, you know, they've been given the surgery or whatever. And, and in this way, it's sort of just asking them, you know, what was your experience? How did you find that? You know, are there any points you, you want to make us aware of? That's an interesting question. I mean, I think Possibly, yes. I mean, I think everything we do in life, if we don't have the opportunity to reflect on it, then we don't necessarily pick up on potential problems or things that could have gone better. And I think about that possibly in, in operating, you know, it's it's very easy when things are very busy just to dip in, dip out and do your bit and then not see or find out what's happened or understand how that's gone. And I think, you, I think you're probably right that the systems are not well set up to capture that. And I think, you know, I just think of a parallel example, we've been doing some work around interrogating the complaints database in, in our hospital. And I think it's it's a lot of value in, in that data, but it, it does represent a very much an extreme. You know, you see someone who's who's crossed that threshold of wanting to make a, a complaint. And actually there's all those other perspectives on a sort of routine basis that that also may have value which you don't get. So I think it's possible, yeah, we just need to be naturally more receptive. I think coming back to the, the root of the question, I think tackling this pain issue i think one of the things is that we haven't been asking the right questions you know our training has has told us that pain isn't a crucial part it's certainly not an indicator for an operation at the moment um and we just haven't asked the question and i think what also happens is that this pain comes to the forefront of somebody's mind further down the line you know when they've achieved their maximal 
recovery, they're adjusting to their disability and their handicap. And that's all sort of under control. And what they're left with, what's at the sort of sort of nagging in them day by day is this pain. And I think that is beyond the natural follow-up of where most surgeons would see these patients to, and therefore it's not come to the surface. And I think that brings it full circle, really, because, you know, if we looked at where the research environment is today in myelopathy, it's largely driven by surgeons and it's very much focused on the the delivery of surgery itself. I think what Recode has done by bringing in those different perspectives, you know, other healthcare professionals, as well as the lived experience, is it's, you know, those priorities are now covering the full spectrum of the disease from start to finish. Um, And I think that's hopefully going to open up lots of potential areas for for very quick progress uh, and really making a difference to to the people who are living with with myelopathy. And just to kind of add add a a footnote to that, I think it's making a big change to the attitudes and and, uh, approaches of those surgeons who have been involved in the process too. And uh, I really, really hope that they can uh, kind of cascade that learning to their colleagues across the DCM spectrum you know it's amazing how they've responded and participated in this work and I'm sure they actually have changed the way they provide care as a result. So there you have it a richer and fuller picture when you bring that lived experience perspective into your research but of course there are other challenges to overcome and you can hear more about them throughout this series from aospine.org or by searching research top tips on your podcast provider. So until next time, a final thanks to our guests, Dr. Mark Cotter and Toto Grunland, our producer, Carl Homer from Cambridge TV, and of course, AO Spine. You can find lots more information about AO Spine Recode DCM, including more top tips episodes and other resources to support your DCM research at aospine.org forward slash recode. To stay abreast of the latest news in the field of DCM, why not subscribe to Myelopathy Matters on your favorite podcast app? Or if you have an experience or perspective you would like to share, please drop me an email, ben at myelopathy.org. Until next time, goodbye.